Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Halistova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Michelle Wooker. Michelle is a strategist, speaker, and best-selling author. Michelle coined the term gray rhino as a call to take a fresh look at how we respond to obvious, probable, and impactful risks. She founded the Chicago-based advisory firm Gray Rhino and Company and is a former media and think tank executive. Her four books include the influential global bestseller The Gray Rhino, How to Recognize and Act on the Obvious Dangers We Ignore, and the recently released sequel You Are What You Risk, The New Art and Science of Navigating an Uncertain World. Now, in this podcast interview, we talk about risk, of course, what is it, and how we perceive it differently based on our own risk fingerprint. We talk about the gray rhino and how we can apply it to the global economy and the financial markets today. Michelle explains how women and men think and act on risk. We cover systemic risk and how women can protect themselves. We also talk about women, their finances, investing and building their net worth what are some of the key risks to watch out for and the risks you certainly want to take. And to finish up, Michelle shares her opinion on what the grey rhinos are for the retail investor at the moment. I hope you enjoy this podcast interview as much as I did. Please note that this podcast interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. Michelle, welcome to the show. I'm super excited to have you on today. Thank you so much for the invitation. Now, we're going to be talking about risk, which is such an exciting topic. But before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and also your journey to where you are today? And I guess I'm personally very curious, why become an expert in risk? It's a great question. So I, I have trouble telling people what I am these days. I usually call myself a, a strategist, a policy expert, author, speaker. People have called me all kinds of things, none of which is 100% true, but none of which is 100% untrue. You know, economist, anthropologist, sociologist, futurist, journalist, which I haven't been a journalist for more than 20 years. But basically what I do is I draw on my background first as a, a financial writer and editor and then a bureau chief, and then as a think tank policy analyst, and then as an executive sort of running organizations, working with boards. I draw on all of that to help people think in new ways about risk, to take a fresh look at the obvious risks in front of them, because we kind of take for granted that we're going to deal with them when the opposite is quite the case, and really try to bring complex systems dynamic thinking to the challenges that people face and make it easier to relate to complex problems and turn ideas into ways to run your business better, to run your life better, to improve the world. That's an incredible answer, Michelle. Before we get into it, how do you define risk and, and why is it important to understand? I think the word risk itself just sounds so alarming, doesn't it? And it can be very off-putting. So how do we define it? Why is it important? How do we perceive and respond to risk? It's such a great question, and partly because risk professionals 
deal with this all the time, trying to get themselves heard. They're often stuck in a little silo somewhere. Everybody talks about risk in a different way. To a financial professional, there's a very technical definition. To people in everyday life, there's usually a very close link between risk and uncertainty. I think about risk in a lot of ways, particularly as a choice. We make 35,000 choices, give or take, every day. Every single one of those choices is a risk, and every risk is a choice. And everybody brings their own baggage to how they think about risk. In some of the workshops that I do with corporate groups, one of the first things I do is I ask them, how do you define risk? And it's completely different in completely different industries. And you get different mixes. Some people have a very positive connotation, like adventure, opportunity, chance. And other people have a very negative connotation, you know, peril, loss, and they, they get very scared about it. And what I want them to do is realize that risk has two sides, you know, the opportunity and the danger, and that the way you look at it shapes the way you're going to deal with it. And it's actually going to steer the outcome towards one direction or the other. So when talking about risk, you want to be aware of your own biases and of the biases of the people around you and think about approaching risk in a both sides kind of a way and think about how you're going to increase the odds of things working out the way you want them to. It sounds very easy, but I know it's not. <laughs> No, not at all. You know, it wouldn't be what I do with my life if it were that easy. Absolutely. But it sounds like all roads lead to risk. I must admit, when I heard you talk about the fact that a black swan was a cop-out and that most risks are grey rhinos, I was thrilled at your genius observation, honestly. Can you explain what a grey rhino is and how this differs from a black swan, which if you look at the definition is an unpredictable or unforeseen event, typically one with extreme consequences. So my question is, did Nassim Nicholas Taleb get it wrong? And why are grey rhinos important to understand? Well, he didn't actually get it wrong. I mean, he came up with a term black swan based on Europeans going to Australia centuries ago and thinking all swans were white. They couldn't even imagine the possibility that a swan was black and they freaked out when they saw the black swans. And so that was his metaphor for not being able to get your head around something. And he wrote about black swans as a way to remind people that you are much more likely to get surprised by something that you can't even think about, and also to help people to get more used to the idea that they're going to have to deal with uncertainty. Those are really important ideas, and they're also a way of building resilience. It's an incentive for building resilience, but that's not the way a lot of people have used it. Unfortunately, the book came out right before the great financial crisis of 2008-2009, and instead of using the term as he intended, they used it, as you said, as a cop-out. Oh, that was a black swan. Nobody could have seen it coming. And we see that over and over again with the portfolio managers who lost their clients' money. We saw it more recently in the beginning of the pandemic when politicians were coming out saying, oh, black swan, nobody could have seen this coming. But you, know, you had Bill Gates' TED Talk in 2015. You had so many public health officials and think tanks coming out and saying, we're really worried about a pandemic. We're not ready. I mean, actually, Nassim Taleb himself 
wrote about a pandemic as something that has happened before that we need to picture happening again. And I made a brief mention of that in my book, The Gray Rhino. So although The Gray Rhino often gets talked about with black swans, it came from a different place. It came from this question, why do some leaders see a big scary thing coming at them and do something to get out of the way? And other ones don't. It came out of my work years ago as a financial journalist writing about sovereign debt crisis and comparing Argentina and Greece, you know, very geeky sort of stuff. But the question I felt was so important to corporate strategy, I found out later from readers that it's very useful individually. And I was, of course, thinking about policymakers and business leaders. And so the gray rhino, picture a big gray rhino, two tons, right in front of you. Wow. Its horn is pointed at you. It's pawing the ground. It's snorting. It's getting ready to charge. And it's giving you a choice. What are you going to do? You know, are you going to get trampled? Are you going to move out of the way? Or are you going to use its strength? And it's gray because when this image popped into my head, I was in my office with a friend, a senior corporate M&A lawyer, and he made a joke about the black swan. He says, oh, you can call it a black rhino. And of course, I had been to the zoo in grade school, and I kind of remembered there actually is a thing called the black rhino, but wasn't there also a white rhino? So of course, I went to Wikipedia, and that's when I realized that all rhinos are gray, and that the black ones are gray, and that the white ones are gray. And so that these names that we've given to these different species of rhinos are completely misleading. And it was a really great metaphor for how vulnerable we are to ignoring the obvious thing in front of us. So why are they so difficult to expose and how do we expose them? And I, and I guess the next part of that is what does diversity have to do with it? Because it's not easy for people to call out a gray rhino. It's not. You know, people don't want to hear what they don't want to hear. And it's a big social risk to say, hey, have we thought about this possibility? And it's not so much about exposing them because they're big, they're there. People are talking about them. They're not a secret in any sort of way. They're not like the elephant in the room, which is something embarrassing or awkward that people by definition don't talk about. So gray rhinos are things that people are talking about. And what I'm really concerned with is the response, you know, whether people put their hands over their ears and say, la, 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 and look away like the three monkeys, or whether they respond or not. So part of it's just the very simple practice of recognizing that you're vulnerable to looking away from the obvious thing and making a habit of coming back and asking yourself, what's my gray rhino? What's the big thing coming at me that I'm going to get trampled by if I don't pay attention? How am I responding? How's my company responding? How are other people responding? The ones who need to help fix the problem? And what could we do better. So it involves taking a fresh look at the obvious things and then being really honest about how you're responding to it. And diversity is really good because different people will see something from a different angle. You know, somebody might be standing somewhere where they see a gray rhino that you might not actually see. And they help to bring different perspectives. There's a phenomenon called groupthink, whereby if everybody in the room went to the same schools, the same age, you know, has the same background, if one person says something, everybody goes around the table and nods and says, oh, of course, even if they disagree. And that sort of groupthink phenomenon of being 
unwilling or unable to raise the possibility that maybe something might go wrong, that becomes harder and harder the more homogeneous a group is. And so diversity of perspective, which often goes with gender, demographics, background, you know, age, all of these other factors is important. And it's not just the demographic boxes that people check, but real differences of perspectives and being willing to speak up, which is hard. You know, if you're the only person who looks different in a room, it's a lot harder to speak up, but you probably also have a lot more practice speaking up in difficult situations. It's one of the reasons we talk about the fact that we need at least 33% of women on the board, because that's the critical point where it's easier for women to speak up. The more women in the senior management positions, it tends to be a proxy for innovation, challenging the status quo, just doing things differently. And part of that is identifying risk that maybe isn't seen or talking about things that are regarded as more risky or maybe just misunderstood. Absolutely. There are piles and piles of research on how companies with more than a third women on the board outperform other ones. And I think that's true for all kinds of diversity. And, and some of it is a chicken and the egg sort of thing. Do companies get better because they've got women on the board or are the better companies the ones who recognize the importance? And I think it's a self-reinforcing circle. And women and speaking out and risk is a really fascinating subject because Certainly, having spent a lot of my life in financial and policy circles and national security conversations, there often are very few women. And I kind of get used to being the only one. And as a woman, you can have a couple of things happen. You can speak up and then you get told that you're bossy or aggressive or you don't know your place or blah, blah, blah. You can speak up and get ignored. And five minutes later, some guy says the exact same thing and everybody claps and applauds his brilliant idea. It's actually called heat heating. And a lot of male allies have started to recognize this and, and allies of both genders for people of color and the whole BIPOC groups, whenever they speak up, having allies who understand that if the group doesn't respond right away, you want to say, oh, as so-and-so said. And so when you get better at speaking up, you're getting better at taking a social risk. And so you, in general, are more comfortable with saying the thing that nobody wants to hear, and it actually feels less risky for you. It's like building a muscle, and that social risk muscle of saying the thing that's uncomfortable but immensely valuable to companies and decision makers is really what we need to be striving for. Now, I'd like to talk briefly about the global economy and financial markets. We're experiencing surging inflation, a cost of living crisis. The stock market and crypto has plummeted. We know the central banks have been money printing since the start of the pandemic, but this is certainly not the first time they have pumped liquidity into the market. If you had to apply the Grey Rhino framework to the global economy and the financial markets today, how would you talk about it? Well, first of all, I like to think about the Grey Rhino in a very forward-looking way. Journalists ask me all the time, was X, Y, or Z a Grey Rhino or Black Swan? And of course, you can only talk about Black Swans in hindsight. And some people have accused me, not knowing my work, of meaning Grey Rhino to be an I told you so concept. And nothing could be further from the truth. 
it's meant to help people to look forward and to hold leaders accountable. And so obviously there are all sorts of mistakes that have been made, but looking forward, the question is, you know, how are we going to handle the situation given where we are? And I think some of it is a continuation of some of the problems that we've been seeing in which the pandemic made worse. And some of those are economic inequality. And of course, we have these asset bubbles that are now popping and going forward as interest rates rise, you're going to start seeing some companies have trouble paying their debts. Uh, We're going to see economies slow down. And I think the real thing to look at going forward is how we solve the problem. And one of the lessons we can learn from the past is that many of the solutions have involved these very indirect top-down efforts. You know, you just pump money into the markets and the rich people get richer. And the story is that it's going to trickle down, even though the studies show that that's not the case. And we experimented during the pandemic with helicopter money, giving money directly in theory to the people who needed it most, but we're finding out now that we gave it to a lot of people who needed it the least as well. But the question really needs to be, how do we help the most vulnerable people through this crisis And actually, by helping the most vulnerable people, you are also going to get a trickle-up effect through the economy. People are going to be able to pay their bills. They're going to be able to pay their rent. Landlords are going to be happier. Local businesses are going to be happier. So I think we need to move away from business as usual and really deal with some of those problems in a way that makes more sense than the ways that we have been that clearly have not been working. I'd love to shift gears a little bit and talk about women and risk-taking because wrongly, you and I know women are often perceived as risk-averse, which is a terrible term. I've heard you talk about how much you dislike that term. I'm completely with you. Women are not risk-averse. Can you explain how women and men think and act on risk? Does gender actually play a role And to what extent are women and men a byproduct of our society, gender norms, bias, et cetera? Absolutely. And there's a whole chapter in You Are What You Risk about this and another chapter about all sorts of other demographic impacts on risk. Because, you know, millennials also get painted with this term that I hate. (laughs) I'm glad you realize. So there's a couple of things going on. I mean, obviously, men and women are not exactly the same partly because we have very different experiences. I'm like me, I'm five foot three and a half. If I go down a dark alley at 3 a.m., it's not the same as a six foot something tall linebacker going down that same alley. I mean, objectively not the same risk. Similarly, as we spoke just a moment ago about women speaking up in meetings, in some ways it's riskier, it's harder, might not be worth the effort, but on the other hand, women get better at it, so eventually perceive it as less. So there's research that shows that there are certain areas where men are likely to be more risk-seeking. And that's in dangerous driving, the speeding, the drunk driving, imbibing substances that are dangerous when you're not supposed to, or risky sexual behavior, those sort of things. I mean, you'll see men much more likely to be taking those risks. There's also research that shows that women are more likely to take these social risks, as I said, to step up. But as I said, if you know, there's this gap between you know, perception of a risk, how it feels, and what the risk actually is, women who are in a gender atypical field, a woman police chief, for example, or a woman university president, although that's becoming much more common, thankfully, if women make a misstep in that job, they are likely to get punished more than a man in the same 
job because it's you know gender typical. So the consequences are much higher. Women are much more likely to get promoted into glass cliff situations where you know a company is teetering on the edge and in many ways men are chicken to do it or it's in some cases it's the only time that men will let women do that. And so those are very difficult circumstances. But the fantastic economist, Julie Nelson, who's written a lot about this, and she's got a background in statistics, she went and looked at all of these dozens and dozens and dozens of studies that have been done over the year with the headline saying that women are, quote unquote, risk averse. And she found that one, some of these were not hugely statistically significant. So you're getting big headlines that are repeated throughout the media based on some fairly tenuous results. So that's one problem. The second problem is that a lot of those, she said, look at averages of women's risk preferences. And when you look at ranges, she found that there's a 95% overlap. So this whole idea of men and women being different is something else. The other thing that is true is that women have different financial needs, financial constraints. There are lots and lots of studies showing that women lose a million dollars over their lifetime because of their career and financial choices. And that's not necessarily out of risk aversion. It's out of the choices that women have to make. Historically, women getting married, they're basically taking a huge risk by sort of putting their financial and other future into someone's hands. And today, it's interesting, I talk with women and they think that getting married is the bigger risk than not getting married, which is a huge social change from when earlier generations were involved. There is an area that I think needs a lot more work, and that's in a situation where women and men don't have all the information about a situation. And in those situations, women are going to step back, get the information, and not leap before they've looked as much as makes them feel comfortable. And so there is a difference there. But as women and men go up the ladder and have similar amounts of information and experience, the research shows that they make similar choices. So there are lots and lots of nuances to this. And I hear professional women all the time saying, oh, I'm so risk averse. And then they tell me what they've done in their life. And I say, what? Seriously? You think that is risk averse? You being the first in this, the first in that? And there's a stereotype that goes with it. And sometimes there's a term actually called stereotype threat. And sometimes when we expect we're supposed to deal with risk in a certain way, we actually might make decisions that don't align with how we might approach it without that stereotype. So it's a very, very rich topic and something that I think every single woman needs to think about, needs to talk about with other women. Every time you hear a woman use the risk A word, say, let's talk about risk aware. Let's talk about risk savvy. Let's talk about not putting yourself down. Let's have a real conversation. Let's talk about calculated risk. Absolutely. Michelle, I'd love to talk about systemic risk. You touched upon asymmetrical information. So how, for example, limited or no access to information, networks or capital affect women experience? I realize this is a broad question. I think about this often and the fact that the majority of women put their money into, for example, in the UK, a cash ISA versus a stocks and shares ISA, which means that they're losing out on building their net worth. Or if we consider the number of women who may decide to work part-time or in temporary employment, which means that they're likely to lose out on a pension, 
and struggle in retirement or female entrepreneurs who cannot raise capital or decide to bootstrap their business and therefore struggle to scale to one million pounds. So how can women protect themselves from systemic risk? Because we know, unfortunately, the system that's out there, the world that we live in, it works perfectly for what it's designed for. It's designed for men and it's built for men. So how can women protect themselves from systemic risk? Well, I think there needs to be a systemic solution. I mean, you know, no one woman can manage it. And the truth is, if you're working part-time, if you have erratic sources of income, well, frankly, your money should be someplace more conservative. You can't afford to all of a sudden not have work and your portfolio has gone down. So yes, you want to have a diversified portfolio, but make sure you've got the rainy day fund. So in many cases, women are in that situation because of the choices that they have to make with childcare. And also because so many financial systems are tied to work and what I call the risk umbrella, you know, the life insurance, the 401k match, the health insurance. We are in a world where fewer and fewer people are working for the man are staying in jobs for a long time. In some cases, staying in jobs long enough for that match to vest in your 401k. And it's also inefficient. You change jobs and you have to get a different health insurance plan. It was in the US, of course, but then you have to get a different doctor. So having some of these benefits being so closely tied to companies is, I think, part of the problem. And the other thing is that companies have been moving away from employees and towards contractors. And there's all sorts of huge debates over that. And it used to be that when you were a contractor, you'd get paid way more. As a consultant, people assumed, okay, you're paying all those things out of the pocket. And now as more and more people are contractors, there's more competition for those spots and companies are taking advantage of that. And so you're seeing in many cases, companies with higher and higher profits, with more risk being put onto the contract workers. And we've seen debates in the United States over Uber drivers and other platform economy workers. The solution that often is proposed is make them into employees, but I don't think that's it either. I think that a lot of people don't want to be employees. They want the freedom that doesn't come with being an employee, the ownership of your intellectual property. So I think we need a third way, really a new system whereby independent workers, gig workers, freelancers, whatever you want to call them, are protected by a risk umbrella that is not solely dependent on companies. Many, many women have to be in this position because of childcare and other choices they make. So it's really a problem that that society needs to discuss and that affects businesses. I mean, you look at women's purchasing power, huge. Women make so many financial decisions and they ought to be having more say in how the system works. I completely agree. And I think knowing what the risks are is a really important place to start. Some women may not think about the fact that if they work part-time or they're in temporary employment, what that means for their purse, how does that impact their pension, the contributions they make or can't make so that they have adequate funds in retirement And it's having that concept in your mind. So understanding what the risks are when you're, say, working part-time, financially what that means, and then having a plan for how to deal with it. And unfortunately, because we haven't encouraged women to step into this money thing, money is still considered a taboo, especially in the UK. 
these conversations aren't happening. And then the advice that is very much needed by women around their finances isn't happening to the extent that it really needs to be. And I think a lot of financial advisors will just assume that women are, quote unquote, the risk A word that I hate. And so a lot of the advice is not really tailored to asking women what their needs are. And the other part is society is not tailored to that. I mean, women often take much more time for parental leave than fathers say. It's unpaid work. Now, mm. somebody ought to be paying into their pensions for that time. I hear too often a sort of a scolding of women for not putting enough money into pensions or whatever. But there are times when that number on a piece of paper is not the most important thing in your life. When I finished graduate school, I was in a full-time job. I had actually switched from being a reporter to being an analyst for emerging markets debt on Wall Street. I was being paid quite well, and I was chopping away my student loans and you know paying those down and adding to my 401k, doing all those things that you were supposed to do. Mm. And I ended up actually getting very sick because in hindsight, I look at how much I was allowing sleep and how much stress I had. And it's obvious to me in hindsight why I was getting sick. But at some point, I had to make the choice to walk away from my job and freelance and write my first book because I felt like that was what I had to do. And so all those considerations, the financial considerations, to me became less important because I knew that if I didn't take care of my health and if I didn't fulfill my purpose, then I was just going to get sick again. And in many of those cases, it's a choice that women are forced into because of circumstances. And I know I'll sound like a broken record, but it's a much bigger societal problem about yeah. how we fund healthcare and retirement and all of that, and how we give people options to switch from one job to another without worrying about some of the risk things. You know, a lot of people see a traditional job as the quote unquote safer option. But if your boss is a control freak who can't make up their mind, if it's a toxic work environment, if you're not growing, you're unhappy, then that is not risk-free at all. So we need to also change the definition of risk-free. And as, as we're seeing in this post-pandemic great resignation, people are realizing that and employees and companies are having to make some big changes because of it. Yeah, some really important points. And I also just want to underline when it comes to female entrepreneurs, and we know how difficult it is for women to raise capital. It's one of the reasons that a lot of women do bootstrap their business and for longer. It's probably what makes them better entrepreneurs as well. But it explains why we don't see quite as many startups that can scale to a million pounds or dollars and above. And I think women, you could argue, are aware of some of the difficulties or they certainly they're aware they may not have the networks and the connections into and therefore they kind of sidestep the issue, if you like. However, we know it's a problem and it's difficult then to grow the business at the speed that it might need. And so again, it's being aware of that risk and then how can you navigate it? But equally to your point, it's a business problem. It's a business failure, actually. And very much a failure of the VCs. There's a story in You Are What You Risk in the gender chapter about Genevieve Tiertz, who's made lists of the most successful entrepreneurs in Illinois, the co-founder of SitterCity.com, which she sold a ways back. But she talks about when she was founding that, she had to bring her then co-founder and CTO, now her husband, 
into meetings with her when she was raising funds because otherwise the VCs wouldn't think she was, quote unquote, willing to take enough risks. And she talked about sitting down with other senior women who had the very same experience. And there's some more recent research talking about how VCs' perception of women and risk-taking is so far off the mark that by traditional measures of financial risk, I mean, how much leverage you take on and things like that, women are actually on par with men. There's other research that shows women-founded startups are more likely to succeed than men-founded startups. And even so, women are getting just a few percent of the VC dollars. And there are some amazing women and men investors out there trying to fix that problem. But the truth is that the VC investors are losing out as well. And I think they need to recognize that they're being hurt by the stereotypes that they are imposing on women and on their investment choices. Absolutely. Now, what would you say are some of the other gray rhinos for women around money and investing? And how do we address them in your opinion? Wow, that's such such a good and such a complicated question. I really wish it were easy. As with a lot of things, I think the answer really starts with self-awareness. And that's one of the things I try to do in You Are What You Risk. I mean, The Gray Rhino really analyzes how an event is unfolding and how people are responding. And You Are What You Risk is about why we respond that way. There's a concept I use called the risk fingerprint which has three parts, two of which you don't have so much control over, and the third one, which you do, which is naturally where I spend the most of my time. But your risk fingerprint is like a real fingerprint that's a forensic identifier. And if you think about the fingerprint on a glass at a crime scene as an identifier, that's the risks that you take. The biggest risks you take, the biggest risks you don't take, all of those choices tell the world who you are just as much as that fingerprint on the wine glass tells the detective that you did something extremely risky and criminal. But so the first one is like, think of the arches and the whorls and the loops on your actual finger. It's genetically determined. It's why fingerprints are such strong identifiers. That's your innate personality. It's what you're born with, your, your natural inclinations. I'm very different from my siblings. Everybody is. So the second one, imagine a scar across your fingerprint from getting cut with a knife. And some people get that knife cut and they think, ah, well, I survived that, no big deal. And they go and become sushi chefs and you know, use <laughs> knives all the time. And other people never want to pick up a knife again. You know, they're like, you know, give me the butter knife if I have to. So that's the interaction between your lived experience, you know, the risks that work out, the ones that don't, the interaction between that and your innate personality. And the lived experiences also include your culture, the people around you, your whole life up to that point, the risks that worked out, the ones that didn't. So the third area I like to think of as whether you're doing manual labor and have all sorts of calluses on your fingerprints or you use a super soft raw shea butter lotion that smells pretty and your fingerprints are super smooth or you, you sit in the bathtub and for too long and it gets all wrinkly. And that's the environment that you create. And that's really how to optimize your environment for your combination of personality and experiences. So are you working in a traditional company or are you working for a startup? Who are the people around you? Do you have a rich network of people you can turn to for different kinds of advice? Both the sassy best friend who will say, you know, dump that boy and, you know, the other ones 
who will support you in different ways. You've got different parts of expertise, includes both friends and professional advisors, life coaches, doctors, lawyers, things like that. But also things that you might not think of, the temperature in the room. If it's cooler, you're more likely to be risk-seeking. What you eat, if you have spicy food for lunch, if you want to get your courage up, that's what you should do because you will be more risk tolerant for a few hours after you eat the spicy food. You know, fragrances, the music you're listening to, upbeat music makes you more likely to speed when you're driving. So I get asked a lot, is there an ideal risk personality? And I said, no, it, but there's an ideal environment for each one that enhances your innate personality and companies both need the innovator who's going to do wild things and fail all the time, but they also need the bean counter who's going to be really, really anal and drive people crazy, but they're going to keep the company from getting into trouble. So it really starts with that self-awareness. Understand why you're making the risk choices that you do, if you're happy with them or not. And if you're not happy, or even if you are, how you can change your peer group, where you work, your habits everything to help you make better risk choices. And when it comes to women, their finances, investing, building their net worth, what are the key risks to watch out for? And what are the risks you definitely want to take as investors? Well, I think it really depends. Hopefully people have been taught since they were small or they got that little investment wheel at your first job where, you know, you look at your stock and bond mix, understand the importance of a diversified portfolio. And as I mentioned before, if you are a freelancer or entrepreneur, you're going to want a much more conservative financial money portfolio in the bank, in the set of funds that you have. And obviously you don't want it all in one pot. The more you diversify, the better, just like with opinions, the more you diversify, the better. Understand your risk tolerance. They're great tools for this. Riskalyze and many others that will ask you a bunch of hypothetical questions about how much money you're willing to risk in order to get a certain amount. That helps. The behavioral tools like something called the risk type compass that I use a lot that will tell you about your innate personality, how anxious or calm you are and how impulsive or methodical you are in dealing with risk. So understand yourself, then make sure that your portfolio is diversified and count what you're doing in your job as part of that. I mean, as an entrepreneur, you may be making an investment that's like way bigger than any sort of stock market risks. I mean, there's a profile in the book of some friends of mine who founded Waffles and Dingus, this amazing waffle truck, which I'm glad I discovered before I was diagnosed with celiac disease. So that I could actually, and they now have some gluten-free ones. That's how good they are, friends. Oh, wow. but, but, you know, they both had you know, more traditional corporate jobs and they quit. They emptied out one of their 401ks to start the business, left the other one there. One of them stayed in the corporate job until they were able to make it a full-time family business. And that was a choice. And, and you know, it looks like huge risks to empty out your 401k, but the business is now something, you know, had a hard time during the pandemic, of course, but it's actually doing amazing things. So I think it's looking at the parts of your portfolio differently, even investing in education that you should think about as part of your financial portfolio. And then think about your life portfolio. What sort of risks are you taking in your job, with your health, with your career, with your relationships? When you're out having fun, do you do bungee jumping or, or, or not? And make sure that you're taking less risk 
in the areas that are not as important to you so that you can take more risk in the areas that you want. So take really good care of your health, of your finances, of your relationship, if you really want to focus on your career. And you can shift things around in that life risk portfolio and then relate that to your financial portfolio as well. That's wonderful advice. I've had a few female entrepreneurs on the podcast and every time I ask them about how they manage their money, what they invest in, what their approach is, given that they're entrepreneurs, they basically responded that they invest in very high risk assets, alternative investments and so on. It is very personal. Their risk profile obviously is very high. They're very comfortable with risk. Again, this is not investment advice. But it is interesting, isn't it? We're all different. Yeah. And it depends too where the market is. I interviewed a financial advisor who works with a lot of millennials for the book. And he says, you know, everyone says they're super risk averse. Well, they've graduated with way more student loan debt than we did when I was in school. And you've seen the markets at crazy heights. Well, until a couple months ago, they're still at crazy heights, just not as crazy as they were a couple months ago. And if you're paying back, I don't know what rates are now, but I think mine were like seven and a half or eight percent or something. So a guaranteed return of say eight percent by paying that down versus who knows what, you know, a lot of people think the markets are gonna continue to go down with the interest rates going up and the economy being shaky have a rainy day fund before you make any of those investment decisions. I was just listening to a lecture about how liquidity risk is actually existential risk. And you should think about that personally. You want to make sure that you've got enough liquidity to go through. And it's one thing if you've got a family who you know will bail you out if you need, and it's something entirely different if you don't. And I would love to see in communities where people don't necessarily have those family resources, more of a public fund to help encourage those entrepreneurs and to help them know that they can take those good risks that come with innovation and entrepreneurship and know that there is something there to backstop them. You know, if they don't have the family, because we're missing out on whole parts of the population who've got great ideas, great drive, but might not have the networks at first and might not have the safety cushions. You look at all these social enterprises and things, and a lot of them tend to be upper middle class kids who've got the thing to fall back on. And everybody should have that opportunity because we all benefit when everybody's out there taking the good risks that optimize their skills and personality. Now, as the risk expert, how will more women stepping onto more boards and into the C-suite of financial services companies change how these companies make decisions and serve the female customer? Well, as we said before, the research shows that companies with more diverse boards outperform, and there are some funds that are explicitly investing in companies that have critical representation of women and other underrepresented groups on boards. I think having more women on will help people to avoid some of the more dangerous risks and follow some of the more positive risks. The quote around the financial crisis saying if it had been Lehman sisters instead of Lehman brothers, we'd have a different outcome. Personally, I think if it was Lehman siblings, <laughs> that would be the ideal because, you know, a board that's all women has as many problems as all men. So you're going to get better ideas. Also, if companies have a large percentage of women as their consumers, but 
their board doesn't match that, well, they're not in touch with their consumers. So I think that there are just huge financial benefits to be seen from bringing more women on boards through better decision-making, better risk awareness, better processes. And there's also some research, Therese Houston writes about it in her fantastic book, How Women Decide. But in stressful situations, in crises, women actually tend to make better risk choices than men. And then in hindsight, they are better at evaluating the choices that they need. And all too often, companies wait until the crisis to bring women into the decision-making circles. And if they did that much sooner, they wouldn't be having so many crises. So there are huge benefits on the upside and protecting from the downside risks to bringing more women onto corporate boards. I'm coming up to my final question. And I want to say, Michelle, thank you so much for today. Just so much food for thought. So insightful. Really, really love your research. Thank you so much for sharing. So final question, as a retail investor, what, in your opinion, are the gray rhinos at the moment? Well, retail investors are in such an interesting place in this economic cycle. You know, during the pandemic, we saw the percentage of retail investors jumping into all kinds of stocks going way up. People who, including many younger people who haven't had an experience in a significant down market. And people who are being influenced in completely new ways, right? you know, all of these websites and things and crazy behavior. I forget his name, but there was a guy out there bragging about how he was using his day trading activity to pick up women, which is just kind of ridiculous. Yeah. So I think it's a very dangerous time for retail investors. I think in, you know, in many cases, the big institutions still have an advantage. You know, they've got much quicker access to information. They've got people looking at that. So I would really extend a large red flag of caution to retail investors right now. But at the same time, all the things that we've been taught since we were young, that, you know, dollar cost averaging, you can't time the market, keep a diversified portfolio. All of those rules of thumb are still there. But I think also looking at this life portfolio and that your financial portfolio includes other parts of your life is so important. We have seen among you know older retail investors, some people saying, okay, I made as much money as I need. I'm going to retire now. Some of those might be coming back to work, you know, maybe they're bored as well. But don't just look at putting everything in one basket. Think about risk as a portfolio, both the traditional financial portfolio and all of the activities and priorities in your life. Say, what are the priorities? Where am I putting my money? Where am I putting my time? What am I protecting from losses? And what could I let go if I need to? Wonderful advice. Michelle, if listeners want to find you, if they want to connect with you, how can they do that? Well, there's my website, thegrayrhino.com. Gray with an A, but gray with an E will also get you there. I'm on Twitter at Walker, W-U-C-K-E-R. And you can also search for me on LinkedIn. I write a column on LinkedIn, not as regularly as I always aspire to, but regularly enough. There's a newsletter that you can sign up for there. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. This has been really enjoyable. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack. 
www.ghanaspeaks.com. Until next time, goodbye.